The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony Utah Opera's Ghostlight Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look at the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Jeff Counts. And I'm Carol Anderson. We are joined today by my colleague and wonderful friend, Michaela Calzaretta, who is Utah Opera Chorus Master. Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. It's a great thrill for us, too. So let's just jump right in. We have so much to talk with you about. Carol and I want to know if you were always intending to work in opera. Was this always part of the plan? How did the opera bug bite you? It was not always part of the plan. The plan for a long time was to be a choral conductor, um, either professionally or as the director of choral activities at a college university, as is the path for Mm -hmm. most choral conductors. But I was always aware of opera. It was always playing over the sound system at home. I have an aunt who was an opera singer, and I have all of her scores. and I saw a lot of opera performances when I was young at uh, Lyric Opera of Chicago. Both my parents are from Chicago. We only had the PBS station on TV that came in clearly at home. Um, and I saw the Opera Iowa troupe through Des Moines Metro Opera perform a lot as a native of Iowa. But never really thought about opera as a career until I went to college. I did a bachelor's in voice at Simpson College and my first year there I was in the opera chorus of our production of Falstaff and I had wanted to be a conductor and was pursuing a degree in voice because I felt that I needed to be able to model healthy singing Mm -hmm. Um, I needed a working knowledge of how the voice works and so in the opera chorus I sort of a light bulb went off and I realized that some of the greatest choral repertoire actually comes from opera. And that sort of became part of my radar and then decided, well, maybe I could do something in opera as a career, but I really felt that I would have to sort of work my way up still through academia and maybe get lucky to work at a school that did opera and I could prep the opera course there. Um, And it wasn't until I got further into my undergraduate studies that I learned that people actually get hired as chorus masters to do this professionally. What was one of your first operatic courses that you fell in love with back at Simpson College perhaps when you were first exploring the operatic world? Well the Fugue and Falstaff is a famous moment. It is an amazing piece. It, it was really a struggle. Well and the chorus was so big in our particular production that we didn't all fit on the stage <laughs> so it was fraught with difficulty but I heard on I think a listening exam for a class, a couple excerpts from Wagner's Die Meisterzinger, which has some very famous choral elements in it. And I thought, you know, if I had a chance to really prepare something like that, that would really tick all of my boxes in terms of being fulfilled as a musician, as a conductor. And it sort of went from there. I would say the big bug didn't really bite until... I had graduated from my master's degree, and between finishing um, my master's and starting my doctorate at Indiana University, I was given the opportunity to be an assistant conductor and chorus master um, for Opera Theater of Pittsburgh, which is now Pittsburgh Festival Opera. And being in a professional atmosphere where I got to be the chorus master and got to be in control of my own rehearsals and my own strategies and see my work manifested in the wonderful artists I got to work with, that's when I really felt that, 
yeah, this is what I need to be doing. And I want to do what I can to make this a reality. So obviously, as a course master, one of the nuts and bolts of your job, I suppose, you could say is teaching and polishing an opera score. But what are some of the other things that you've run into now that you're the course master full time of Utah Opera? Well, a course master wears many hats, as all of us do in opera. Everybody at every level in every department. We do a lot more than what is just listed in our title. And may I interject? She literally wears many hats because during Candide last <laughs> year, we had to collect straw hats for everybody in the chorus to wear for Act Two. And I caught her one day in her office wearing four or five of the hats at once. So literally and o- figuratively. Other duties as assigned. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that sometimes does include um, helping arrange costuming for 60 people. Yeah. I would say one of the biggest things I didn't initially anticipate was that as the chorus master, you are the number one cheerleader and advocate for the chorus. It just, it comes with the job. I, I am their leader and I'm the only one who's with them every single step of the way from casting and beginning music rehearsals through staging and tech and performances. And if there's a staging concern or a personnel issue or anything like that, it's really up to me to say something and try and facilitate a change or an understanding. Because it's not that nobody else cares about the chorus because they do. It's just that in rehearsal, everybody's focus is split in a million different directions. But so I have, many moving parts. Exactly. But I have the unique opportunity to focus solely on the chorus. And be a focal point for them, I'm sure. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I can think of a couple examples... Um, I was once preparing the chorus for a production of The Merry Widow, and the last number that the grisettes sing, uh, the the director thought it would be fun to have the grisettes cartwheeling across the stage in a crisscross X formation while they're supposed to be singing. And while that element of the staging did not go away, I did ask if there was a possibility that we could perhaps adjust this, but the vision was the vision. Um, There was also a time when I was preparing a chorus for Deflator Mouse, not this one we did most recently at Utah Opera, but another one, where there's a a beautiful choral moment with all the principles and everything, and the director wanted the chorus to be blindfolded because it was that kind of party. Well... (laughs) I don't, Eyes you know, shut. Right? <laughs> right, but singers being blindfolded while they're supposed to be singing doesn't always work, and it made a mess. Uh, again, it didn't change, but I did inquire um, about it. Um, but to your other uh, question, what's the weirdest thing or strangest thing I've done as a chorus master? Um, there was a, a time um, I was preparing the children's chorus in street scene, And they were a delightful bunch of of kids, and they were working really hard, but they were young enough where they didn't quite understand what their blocking was supposed to be on stage. They made their stage entrance, because the stage manager told them when to go, but they kept forgetting what to do on stage. So we're getting close to our room run, and the director announces in the middle of a rehearsal that, Michaela, you need to go tomorrow to the costume shop and get fitted for a school marm costume because I'm going to put you on stage to help guide the children in all of their scenes <laughs> on stage. Of course. <laughs> and that was also the show where I had a little solo bit at the beginning of the piece, and I sang the Strawberries solo a couple times off stage, But never has, a, before then or since, has a director asked me to put on a costume and help lead a group of people through their blocking. It was very unique, <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. You'll need your manager to address that part of That's your right. contract going forward, I'm sure. <laughs> I right. love hearing you talk about your background and how you got to where you are, because like every 
superhero origin story, it's pretty clear now, looking back, that you were always going to be this, even though it was a job that you didn't even know existed when you started. And I suspect that one of the great sort of shaping influences along the way was this mentor from Indiana University that you talk about a lot. So tell us about him and how his influence helped you in your work and how you eventually became a chorus master because of that interaction. Yeah, that, that mentor's name is Walter Huff, and he was the longtime chorus master at Atlanta Opera for over 30 years, I believe, um, before becoming part of the um, IU choral conducting faculty. His official title is faculty director of opera choruses. Um, Indiana University Jacobs School of Music performs, on average, six fully staged opera productions a year, most of which involve a sizable chorus. And so he's in, he's in charge of preparing all of that, as he did at Atlanta Opera, but this time with students. Um, and I went to IU to study with him um, and was very lucky to have spent three and a half years um, studying with him and watching him work. And there are several things that he has done throughout um, his time in Atlanta and his time at IU that have really stayed with me in terms of his overall mentorship. Um, and one of the things that he's done, particularly at IU, is elevate the importance of the opera chorus in productions, especially in students. He's instilled the notion that being in the chorus is not a bad thing. It's not a punishment. And it's not because you weren't good enough to have a role. Our choruses need to be good musicians and talented people. And IU is chock full of that. And that th this idea that the chorus shows up in opera for a reason. If the composer didn't want them there, they wouldn't have written parts for them. But the chorus represents something that principals cannot. The chorus represents a community, a mass character group of people, all of whom are made up of independent people but act together as a group. And that representation on stage in the stories that we tell in opera is really important. And, and that's a big part of my my goal as a chorus master that even if we're doing something like the marriage of figaro the chorus music is minimal and sometimes a little uh forgetful but it's there for a reason mozart wanted them there the community representation is important to the overall story and so we're going to approach it with the same investment that we would parsifal or something like that something with a much bigger um emphasis on on choral music um I've also been really influenced by the way he rehearses a chorus and how the chorus memorizes their music. It's all about layers with him. And it makes sense. We start with notes and rhythms. When those are good, we add text with lots of focus on proper pronunciation. When that is good, we can add style, nuance, other artful things. Um, some element of that is, of course, influenced by rhythm. But generally, in order for any sort of music to be good, the notes and rhythms have to be accurate first, and then we can be artful about it. And he also has this method using note cards for oh, memorizing. The note cards. Mm -hmm. Yes, the, everyone the knows cards. the Walter Huff method, which actually is not really the Walter Huff method because a lot of chorus masters use this, but it's assigning various sections of music that the chorus, outside of rehearsal, take just a little bit of time and write out the words. And any other important musical ideas rests in between entrances things like that did they come back then and teach it to the rest of the chorus or yeah. how did they use those cards well they they come back and so even by taking just 15 minutes they've already taken 15 minutes more time alone to memorize the music and if I you see. write it out yeah. you're automatically going to commit more information sure. to memory 
So then after we they've done that step, then the next rehearsal, we'll sing that same section with music in front of us. And then we'll try that section again with just note cards in front of us. And I would say nine times out of 10, the chorus is really surprised with just how much they've managed to commit to memory without even really thinking about it. Because they, they look at music and they think, oh, this is impossible to memorize. It's really not. And they've already done more work in rehearsal than they think they have. But you have to help push them a little bit out of their comfort zone. And then eventually, we take the note cards away and we sing everything from memory. And it's it's also a useful resource to have during staging because right. we can't stage with musical scores in our arms because we have other things to do. So this is a little sort of pocket-sized um, resource that they can uh, reference if there's a lull in staging or they're not sure what's coming up next. They've got this little resource in their pocket that helps guide them along the way. I feel like I never saw Michaela quite as excited as the day she came back to the office having discovered that note cards were on sale at Smith's. <laughs> and she cleaned them out. Yes, I bought about 50 bundles of note cards. And I think we're stocked for the next couple of seasons. So There's also the whiteboard method, too, where you write the words on the whiteboard. And then with gleeful anticipation, what do you do? That's right. So I found this massive whiteboard um, at a resale store. And... I, with particularly difficult passages of music, especially ones that have a lot of really wordy text, um, I write out the passages on the whiteboard and then in rehearsal, I will gradually erase words to see how much memorizing we can do as a group. But again, pushing them to beyond their comfort zone, which I think some of them, it's probably a love-hate relationship <laughs> with the whiteboard method especially. Some of them love it and some of them really hate it. But you know, it it gets the job done and it helps encourage them to learn things that they maybe wouldn't learn on their own. It's, it's, a, it's interesting to me that you seem to have taken two things away from your time with him. One is this incredibly detailed sort of technical foundation for making choruses better, but also something you mentioned early in your recounting of your time at Indiana was the notion that the chorus is important, just as important as any other aspect of the score. And I get the sense that whether it's with a pushy director or a a member of the chorus that feels like they might be a different class of citizen from the other artists on stage part of your work is that of a protective parent yeah when you know we're all in this together yeah. I, I have a job to to deliver and prepare a, a chorus that um, meets the expectations and the needs of the production the director the conductor but we're also all in this together. You know, I have my job to prepare them and they have their job to work together as a team, as a community of people to help each other get to that place. So camaraderie and morale is also really, it's an important element of making all of that happen because if they're unhappy, then that, that doesn't get done. That's probably not something you would have just been able to see as a college student without a wonderful mentor to sort of teach that to you? No, absolutely not. Because, you know, they don't teach you that right. when you're conducting any sort of repertoire, this sort of personnel management is not part of the curriculum. It's not in books that you read. Um, and so you're absolutely right. That would not have happened had I not been able to watch a master work. So you've now been with Utah Opera for nine opera productions, and you came in the middle of a big season, our 40th anniversary season. 
At this point, what's been your most memorable operatic experience thus far? And of course, I'd like it to be an, a Utah opera one, probably. It is a Utah opera one. Oh, good. Um, it, it's hard to choose my most memorable um, because, of course, I started with Moby Dick and the opportunity to prepare something that, one, my mentor had not has not had the chance to prepare yet, and he was very jealous. Um, the opportunity to get to work with Jake Heggie and Gene Shear and the fantastic production that we had for Moby Dick, um, plus this great in co- chorus that I kind of inherited when we, I came. We had our first chorus rehearsal on your birthday, did we not? Yes, my first day of work was my birthday and was also our first chorus rehearsal for Moby Dick. So, so happy I, birthday. Yeah. Thank you very is, much. Is it, is it too late to wish you happy birthday now? It's coming up in okay. about two weeks, okay. so thank you. Um, but, you know, all of that in consideration, I think so far the most memorable production for me in terms of chorus and everything has been actually performing Candide last fall with the Utah Symphony. Um, I think the chorus set a new performing standard for themselves. Plus, they got to have so much fun in rehearsals and performances. I've never had more people bummed out that they couldn't be in Candide, because there were 60 people in the chorus, but so many more wanted to be in it. Um, And you know, it's especially memorable for me because at the same time um, we were rehearsing Candide, we were also staging Romeo and Juliet and over half of the Romeo and Juliet chorus was doing double duty in learning Candide at the same time. And I don't think you could have two more opposite uh, pieces to be rehearsed on top of each other. Um, and because of this, you know, I didn't expect them to memorize all of Candide. There were a couple things that our director insisted on ha- being memorized for staging purposes. Um, so I didn't expect them to memorize Candide. It's, it's worth mentioning this was a production in the Symphony Hall, right. so they were not going to be fully staged moving about right. as they would normally in a Utah Opera right. Capital Theater production. But exactly. they were on stage but the they, entire show. They never they didn't left. Get to go off. Yeah. Yes, they, they didn't get a break at all. And with all of that you know, taken into consideration, I said, well, you know, we don't have to memorize this. It's a concert style. It'll be fine. But a group of them came to me after rehearsal one night and said, we actually really want to memorize this, and we think it'll be really easy, and I, we think the rest of the chorus will kind of just follow suit. And um, so they did. They memorized the entire thing. You know, it's also one of my favorite productions because the director insisted on restoring the original chorales that Bernstein wrote for the piece and the chorus sang them with such delicacy and precision. And it really showed that a big opera chorus of 60 people can sing with the sensitivity of a chamber ensemble. And I think the piece really showed their artistic range as a group. And I'm still so immensely proud of their work, both vocally and with the dedication and energy to memorize two shows at the same time was really really stunning to me. It was really spectacular work. What's a topic, real, imagined, historical, fictional, that you think needs to be made into an opera? Anything goes these days. It's true. Anything anything does go these days. Um, I think Harry Potter is begging for an operatic treatment. I mean, I love Harry Potter, so I'm slightly biased. Um, but, you know, 
there are so many magical elements that I think lend themselves naturally to being in the theater. Um, so many types of characters, good characters, villains. I think there'd be a great opportunity for some epic chorus moments. I mean, can you imagine an operatic staging of a Quidditch game or a battle scene with villains and all manner of magical creatures? I think it would be incredibly challenging, but I think it would push the envelope of what opera is capable of, and I think that would be amazing. We often in the green room sit around and we as opera nerds will come up with a popular story like Harry Potter and do dream casting. That's and right. so I'm ready to have that conversation with you at any time. Yes. Figure absolutely. out who in the opera world would be the perfect uh, Professor McGonagall. Yes, let's do it. Okay. So we also ask every guest on the show about their experiences with the supernatural because we're the Ghost Light Podcast. Have you ever seen a ghost? And tell us about that experience. I have not seen a ghost. Uh, I'm not sure if I believe in ghosts or anything like that. Um, but I do have a story. So there's a lounge area in the basement of the Capitol Theater here in Salt Lake City where there's a, a couple tables and some chairs by some lockers. And it's a dark corner of the basement. It's nice and quiet. And I like to sit there when I'm making notes or a warm-up list before rehearsal or performance at the theater. And so one night I was there by myself, and on the wall, there's an automatic paper towel dispenser. And one time it activated and dispensed a paper towel without anybody walking by it. And I was a little freaked out, and I told someone about it later, and they said, oh, yeah, a similar thing happened to me once. That's probably George, the Capitol Theater ghost. But don't worry, he's really friendly. (laughs) And so I don't know if – I don't think that has influenced my – my beliefs at all but it was a very interesting moment um but i'm glad that i wasn't the only one who has experienced that and it was kind of cool to be part of that Michaela, it's at least the fifth george story that we've heard on this podcast oh, so really? if you may not be sure but carol and i are i think george is real i don't I, think there's any doubt the uh, more i hear the more i think <laughs> I there know. is a george i think so too Well, Michaela, it's been great to have a chat with you about this aspect of operatic production. The opera chorus is so important to everything that happens on the Capitol Theater stage, and we've gotten some great insight into how that all comes about. And I just am thrilled that you were able to come and spend some time with us today. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a delight for me, and I'm honored to work here at this incredible organization with all of you. Every day is a treat, and thanks again for having me. Thank the rest of you for joining us on the Ghost Light Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and like us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher and follow Utah Symphony on Spotify. I'm Carol Anderson. And I'm Jeff Counts. The Ghost Light Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. Be sure to visit utahsymphony.org and utahopera.org for more information on upcoming performances. If you're not already a seasoned subscriber, click on the tickets button to learn more about the benefits of being a part of our family of music lovers. The Utah Symphony and Utah Opera Season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation.